Thanks for joining us for this episode of EPRI Unplugged, the podcast of the Electric Power Research Institute. I'm Amy Mills. My guest today is Steve Rose, who's joining me from Washington, D.C., to share his firsthand account of the Paris Climate Talks, also known as COP21, which took place in December. Steve is a technical expert for EPRI, bringing more than 15 years of experience in climate-related research to his role. Steve, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, before we dig into COP21 specifically, let's talk a little bit about the history. The climate talks actually started in 1992 with a convention in Rio that established a framework for stabilizing greenhouse gas emissions. How has this conference of parties, as it's known, evolved to now include 195 participating nations? Well, the first uh, COP took place in Berlin in 1995, so that's following the Rio meeting and agreement. Uh, the third conference, or the COP3, uh, included the signing of the Kyoto Protocol, which many people are familiar with, um, and that uh, protocol committed parties to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That was the first uh, sort of substantive international agreement. A few years later, uh, COP11 produced the Montreal Action Plan, which extended the Kyoto Protocol past its 2012 expiration date. Uh, and then COP17 was important, um, and that's where the Green Climate Fund was created to help developing nations cope uh, with climate change. And that and brings us to 2015 and COP21. The objective of this event was to produce a more comprehensive, a more aggressive agreement on climate change that would keep global warming around or below the 2 degrees Celsius mark. What was the final outcome of that meeting? Well, so it's really worthwhile to start off by stating that the COP21 was truly a, a historic step uh, for international climate policy. Um, it was something that was years in the making. The countries were set, had set their sights uh, on this particular event for essentially putting in place uh, the next major uh, international round of commitments. The Kyoto Protocol commitments were essentially uh, going to expire, and the post-2020 period was considered extremely important. And in that regard, Paris produced a number of sort of highlights. The key one is simply stating a more ambitious climate goal. Instead of pursuing a goal of limiting global warming to below 2 degrees Celsius, the goal was uh, made more ambitious to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius with those uh, keywords of well below added. And even going further and uh, stating that 1.5 degrees uh, should be the, the long-run ambition. So trying to limit global warming or global average warming to well to below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that's already a major step forward in the countries of the world uh, claiming that we need to even be more ambitious in terms of trying to contain global warming. The other important element of the uh, of COP21, the Paris Agreement, was simply the country pledges. So there's an astounding accomplishment with respect to COP21 in producing emissions reduction pledges from nearly all the countries of the world, uh, representing almost all of today's uh, global uh, warming emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. And those country pledges uh, were important for a couple reasons. One, it was a new approach. So in the past, countries negotiated a high-level uh, climate objective, and then they debated about uh, responsibility for trying to achieve that goal. In this case, uh, the Paris Agreement was set up to be a bottom-up approach. Uh, countries came in proposing what they could do in advance, and that was important because everybody came to the table with something to offer. Uh, they had already thought a great deal about what they could do. Uh, they wanted to impress each other in terms of their level of ambition and their commitment. And it also creates a new level of credibility that didn't exist in the past. 
the fact that countries were offering their own customized proposals uh, for pledges um, meant that they simply were sticking their necks out uh, and there was some additional level of credibility that didn't exist before. So having that more ambitious uh, global climate goal and having country pledges put us in a very new place and that's what we have now going forward. There's a lot of other features that exist within the Paris Agreement as well, uh, including two important legal elements. Uh, one with respect to emissions reporting, so this is collecting data from countries so that we can truly understand where we are now and what kind of progress we're making in terms of reducing emissions. And also a five-year renewal of pledges. Uh, so this is countries making a, a formal commitment to come back to the table in five years, revisit and, and assumably uh, strengthen their pledges uh, for going forward. And this is the first time that there were clauses included in an agreement that did have some legally binding language, correct? This is the, the having those two particular statements in there um, uh, is uh, you know, fairly novel. Uh, in the past, countries have been extremely reluctant to sign on to any kind of legally binding commitments for a whole variety of reasons, uh, in part because you know, it's complicated to try to enforce that kind of commitment at home uh, with more complicated political structures. Uh, also because uh, international law is different and you need to sign, somehow come up with uh, language uh, that is legally binding in, uh, with respect to many countries. And that's a, that's a challenge in its own right. We're fortunate you're able to provide a firsthand account. How did it come about that you were able to be there and what was that experience like for you? Um, well, let me start by saying um, this is my first COP. I have to say it's not a bad one to start with, given its significance. Every researchers and leadership recognized the uniqueness of this moment uh, in terms of where we were in the international negotiations and felt that it was important for EPRI to engage and inform the process, including uh, essentially sharing our insights directly into the process by participating in the negotiations. So that created a, a unique opportunity uh, for us as an organization and for, for me as a researcher to develop our ideas and our, our insights that we thought would be helpful uh, to, to the negotiations and then take them directly to the meeting and deliver them. I have to say it was no small feat for us to attain credentials and we ended up uh, not only being able to attain credentials to be able to attend the meeting and be side by side with negotiators, um, but also to be able to arrange events um, at the meeting where we could put together uh, panels uh, specifically focused on topics that we thought were important and bring those, uh, bring a discussion uh, into, the, into the negotiations. And we were able to have conversations there about uh, the country pledges that were being put forth and what they might mean to long-run climate goals, about uh, potential opportunities for international partnerships where countries could potentially work together to try to achieve their goals and that may have some benefits in terms of cost savings. And also another discussion about uh, the science of estimating climate damages, which is the motivation for taking action on climate. And what did you walk away with? What does this agreement and the more aggressive stance mean for global warming for the industry, both the U.S. and globally? Well, the international community did something monumental with this agreement. The sheer fact that we had emissions reduction pledges from most of the world's countries is, is something to be uh, impressed by. And so in that regard alone, uh, I have to say that I was impressed at what they were able to accomplish and, and also uh, with the new, more ambitious goal that they were able to set. Um, however, we need to sort of put that in context, and goals and pledges are one thing, and implementation of those pledges is another thing. 
And that's really where the rubber hits the road. And whether or not we are able to meet these targets going forward and how we might meet those targets are really big questions that we still need to confront. And clearly, greenhouse gas emissions associated with the electricity sector, with electricity generation, will need to be significantly constrained if we're going to be serious about limiting global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius. And this will have to happen everywhere, so not only in the U.S., with respect to the U.S. electric sector, but it's going to happen to have, have to happen in other developed countries as well as in uh, developing countries throughout the entire world. And the role of the electric sector is still to be determined. So this is where thinking about implementation and thinking about not only uh, uh, the kinds of policies that might be put in place, but the kinds of technologies that might be available are really going to be important in terms of how we might go forward in trying to realize a deep decarbonization pathway uh, that's being put before us and sort of trying to succeed in the challenge uh, that the international community has created. And the electric sector may be able to help decarbonize other parts of the economy. And whether or not that's true um, and what sort of transformation the electric sector itself might have to go through is going to be defined by the technologies and policies uh, that are in place and available in the future. And that will define the overall role for the electric sector. It will define the technologies that are deployed and those that are retired. It will define the electric sector as well as the broader societal costs as well as the overall environmental effectiveness of the policy. We've mentioned aggressive. Just to put this into perspective, for the United States specifically to reach the 2050 targets, we're looking at about 80% reduction of emissions. Is that right? Yes. So how do we get there? Well, I mean, as you've already pointed out, um, staying below 2 degrees Celsius is going to be difficult. It's going to be extremely demanding. It requires severe emissions constraints globally on all the countries of the world. It's going to require massive energy system transformation that needs to happen over the next few decades. First and foremost, the country pledges are going to be insufficient. So while it's an historic moment to have all these pledges on the table for most of the world's countries. When we look, when we do the analysis and think about what they on their own will achieve, they're not going to get us there. So they're really only just the beginning. We'll need to be much more ambitious beyond 2030. Countries will have to be willing to take on even more ambitious pledges, significantly more ambitious pledges into the future. And by 2050, we may already have to have undergone a significant energy system transformation. So just in the next few decades, rapidly moving away from today's fossil-dependent systems to low and no-emitting technologies. And we have to do that in a way that's going to continue to allow support for growing populations and economic demand. So by no small means, a, a significant challenge. What role, if any, will the Clean Power Plan play in how the U.S. approaches this agreement? Good question. So the Clean Power Plan is a part of the current U.S. strategy for implementing its pledge. However, it's not in itself sufficient for achieving uh, the U.S. pledge, uh, which is to limit emissions to, uh, to 26 to 28 percent below 2005 emissions level by 2025. So we're going to require emissions reductions beyond the power sector. The elements of the a couple elements of the Clean Power Plan are important to point out. Um, one is that it's a sector-specific emissions policy, um, and what does that mean? As such, it essentially precludes realization of some cost-effective cross-sector emissions reduction opportunities that might exist. 
For instance, the possibility of low-carbon electricity helping decarbonize other sectors, whether it be in transportation or industry. It also precludes cost-effective international emissions reductions. So how might we potentially work with other countries to achieve our goals in a mutually cost-effective way? Of course, the Clean Power Plan is itself still hanging in limbo. We saw a significant development this week even when the U.S. Court of Appeals, the District of Columbia Circuit, decided it wouldn't go before the three-judge panel but to the full court instead. Who knows what that actually means, but with the resolution probably sometime off, if this doesn't materialize in the near future, what does that mean for the United States? Well, it's a dynamic landscape, isn't it? States, uh, from the conversations I've had and from the, from the statements I've heard from individual states, seem to be reacting very differently to the stay on the clean power plan. Some are continuing to essentially move forward with an expectation that the plan will eventually be put in place, and others appear to essentially be stopping and waiting for resolution. That alone is, you know, going to create a little bit of uh, extra chaos and confusion as we, as if we eventually are moving down the path to implementing a plan. But I have to say that, to me, probably the biggest uncertainty is the presidential election. It's not clear exactly what will happen with the Clean Power Plan from the courts, but it's also not clear what will happen uh, when the administration changes. But overall, internationally, that focus is going to stay on staying below the two degrees Celsius mark. Yeah, I don't see any reason for the moment that the international community is going to shift away from that position. Uh, There's even a new study that's been uh, commissioned, is quite the right word, but essentially requested, it's probably the right word, from the uh, international community requesting a study on the potential damages and avoided damages associated with trying to achieve a a climate objective of limiting global warming to below 1.5 degrees. So there's there's clearly a focus uh, on that target that will be for the next few years, and people will be trying to, in the scientific community, trying to better understand what it means, and the policy community, of course, will be paying attention to that scientific discussion as well as continuing to trying to respect the interests of the various various countries who feel most vulnerable. And how does this relate to some of the ongoing research that EPRI's already looking at? How will this influence what, what we're doing? In a number of ways. The sheer, you know, one that's sort of characterizing the nature of the challenge is very important. We've done some work that's uh, helping people think about the kinds of emissions pathways that would be consistent with these this overall climate goal uh, the kinds of energy systems that potentially could be consistent um, a few decades from now uh, to give us some sense of the the kind of um, future we would have to realize and 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 also then to think more concretely about the pathway that we could follow from from today to there so we've been doing work along those lines. I think it's important for EPRI to have that within its sights and think about all the details associated with trying to get from here to tomorrow to a, to a decarbonized future. And that includes uh, everything from the details of technology uh, associated with uh, supplying electricity as well as using electricity, uh, the details of the rest of the energy system in terms of how might uh, those parts of the economy uh, potentially uh, manage their own emissions and what role electricity might play the details of moving of, of interest infrastructure that's going to potentially be needed uh, going forward, and also the um, 
the elements associated with other societal dimensions, which have to do with uh, thinking about the costs of transitioning uh, in different ways, different technologies available, uh, the implications for consumers, and the implications for the country as a whole. Looking ahead to COP22, what do you see happening between now and the next meeting? Well, so COP22 will be in Marrakech um, in November. It's certainly not going to be revisiting some of these high-level elements of the Paris Agreement, so I would expect the overall goal of uh, limiting global warming to well below 2 degrees to stay in place. I would expect there would be unlikely that countries would be revisiting their pledges. Those are essentially on the books, and they're supposed to be working towards achieving those goals. Instead, I think the focus is more likely to be on other aspects of the Paris Agreement. There were some initiatives that were essentially put in place or um, within the agreements. To me, I can think of them as sort of building blocks. One of them has to do with the emissions reporting. So making a declaration that countries need to report emissions is one thing. Now we need to move on to putting in place the, the wherewithal to actually do that. Some countries are already quite familiar with that and do that on, a, on an annual basis, but, but that's not the, the bulk of the world, um, and that's not where most of the emissions in the world are going to come from in the future. So we need to be able to get in place the, uh, the capability uh, and systems for reporting uh, and uh, collecting emissions information. Um, the other is, there's a, another element we didn't, I didn't mention before, it's called a loss and damage mechanism. And this is a, um, a proposal to develop essentially an assessment mechanism for evaluating potential risk to different parts of the world and particularly developing countries. And then uh, potentially coming up with a scheme for compensating some of the losses that may, may occur. So that's, you can imagine that could be controversial <laughs> uh, in terms of thinking about how to characterize loss and how to uh, potentially determine damage and who would be the responsible party for helping compensate uh, for those losses. So I, I would expect that's what will happen at COP22, is that we'll, a lot of these sort of, like I said, building block elements will be the focus of the discussion. Well, hopefully we can reconnect after COP22 and find out what happens. <laughs> but Steve, thank you for lending your expertise and your insight to our podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you, Amy. Until next time, we're shaping the future of electricity.